Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Truth to Power on YouTube. Welcome to the Raising Equity podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have a guest who I actually featured on my What I'm Reading playlist on my YouTube channel. And it's Maggie Hagerman, who wrote White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. I really appreciate you for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. So the book, I really enjoyed it. It was um, one of those things that felt kind of validating because I feel like your book is the case study for why we need to be talking to our kids about race, that we uh, kind of assume that they that they don't get it yet and that they're not ready, but your book shows that they are. Yeah. Um, and I think that unlike a lot of other research, I, what I like about my project, if I will say so myself, is that it, the kids' voices are there. And so you can hear from the children themselves that I studied, you know, what they're thinking, how they're making sense of things. And I think, you know, that pushes us in a new direction beyond just thinking about parents and really thinking about young people. Yeah. And why middle school? Why middle school kids? Yeah. So part of it was just because I, I looked in the existing research and there's a lot of stuff about high school and there's some about elementary school, but I thought that the middle school years, there wasn't as many, um, particularly in sociology, like ethnographies of what's going on in kids' lives at that time. But I think from a developmental perspective, it's also an interesting, I mean, you would know more than me, but an interesting period of time, um, you know, in terms of kids spending more time outside their family, out, you know, out in the world, doing extracurriculars, being with their peers. Um, and also a time that some people argue is when they're thinking, you know, in different ways about ideologies or about social justice or things of that nature. So it's not to suggest that kids are not thinking about race when they're much younger, but I do think the middle school years are an important time. Yeah, no, you're so right. Because research would suggest that they notice race as young as being an infant, right? And that they start to pick up those ideas that we have about race as young as preschool. But this is an important time developmentally because they're starting to get a sense of their identity. Like, who am I? Who am I separate from my parents and their peer group? And what I love is that you set this up to remind people that these kids are not empty vessels that we just pour into, that they are dynamic beings and they're they're listening to the radio, to their peers, they're picking up messages, even unspoken messages. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a really dynamic time. So I appreciate the the focus on this age. And I'm biased. I have a middle schooler, so <laughs> <laughs> I was intrigued. <laughs> well, I really appreciate your, um, you know, engaging with the text and, and hearing from you as, you know, a, an academic and as a parent, you know, um, it means a lot to me. So thank you. For, yeah. yeah. For those who don't understand what an ethnography is, tell them. I mean, it's it's really intense research methodology. <laughs> it is definitely intense. Um, so in an ethnography, you're really trying to understand and document, you know, how people are making sense of the world around them and, and sort of looking at things like how people make meaning, how people understand diff- different ideas. Um, and so what that means is, you know, spending time in a community. So for my, in my research, I, I moved to a community that I had never lived in. I didn't know much about it. I spent about three months just trying to get a lay of the land, figure out the local arguments around the school districts and the school committee and all those kinds of 
things. Um, but then also trying to figure out where it was in this community that affluent white people were living and choosing to live um, and raising their children. And so I ended up recruiting 30 families to participate in the study. And I spent two years with these families. Um, you know, I babysat a lot of the kids and I, um, which was really great because, you know, so much happens in the car or driving to soccer practice or whatever. And so, yeah, it was, um, I interviewed the parents, I interviewed the kids, and I just tried to immerse myself in their everyday lives because um, I think what we know from survey research with white adults, for example, is that if you just ask a white person to fill out a survey about, like, are you racist, they're probably going to say no. And so, you know, the, the power of ethnography is being able to sit back and observe people as they actually live their lives. And that's, I think, you know, the everydayness of whiteness can really be seen. And in many ways, I think is um, at least a good place to start with respect to studying this group. It's so powerful because I know in my work, I mostly look at the experience of discrimination. And so it's often people who are targets of discrimination, mm. not necessarily privileged groups. Uh, but I had... In my in my work in the community, I work with a lot of white folks, and I had a student who wanted to study white racial identity development, and she t wanted she did talk to parents at a at a school that was integrated, um, but there was a lot of resistance. Mm -hmm. So, like you said, when you give someone a survey, or even when you ask them point blank in a direct way, there was a lot of discomfort about talking explicitly about race, about talking about racism. There was this feeling that, well, I'm one of the good ones because I've chosen to live in the city and put my kids mm -hmm. in an integrated school. So I've done my work, right? But oh, wait, you want me to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe talk a little bit about that that tension and also being a white person. Do you identify as white? I do identify as white. Um, and I don't think that I would be able to have done this study, at least in the same way, if I wasn't. And I say that because there were, there were a lot of parents who told me that they would not have talked to me even about these issues if I hadn't been a white woman myself. Um, I also think that, you know, I was able to get in, I just like walked into country clubs and, you know, spaces that I think if you were to walk into as a black woman might not, you know, your experience might be different than mine. Yeah. The guard would probably be. Up. Yeah. They, yeah. And so I think that, um, yeah, I think that, that my own whiteness really shaped this project a lot. But yeah, to get to your other question, I mean, yeah, there's so many interesting ways that white people, both in this book, but then also as I've been talking about my book with, with different communities, try to sort of excuse themselves from all of this, right? That like, oh, those people over there are the bad racist people and I'm not. And I don't know that that gets us anywhere. I mean, we're, we're all living in the system of inequality, the structure of oppression and white supremacy. And I, I just think that we are all implicated, every last one of us. And so, yeah, I don't think that just because you send your kid to an integrated school, I mean, that's great, you know, in a lot of ways. Maybe there's some down, you know, maybe maybe not in some communities. I don't know. But, you know, there, there are certainly things I think are useful. But I think that we are all constantly, you know, tasked with trying to fix this. And we can't just say, you know, our job is done. Um, we need to keep pushing. Yeah, we're all on the hook. Right. Right. And right. in your book, you talk to kids who went to integrated schools and they still don't fully understand the larger system. And, and some of them are starting to, to notice and put the pieces of the puzzle together. But I think your your book and the kids you talk to actually prove the point that your work isn't done just when you place your kid in this integrated school. Right. So it's not right. just us saying that, that right. we actually Absolutely. hear. 
Yeah. I mean, I think some, some examples include, um, you know, kids, for example, who have the knowledge, like they can talk about the history of white supremacy in America. They can talk about contemporary patterns of, of inequality, but it's just knowledge. Like it hasn't turned into like a critical consciousness or it hasn't turned into something that leads to action or leads to, you know, changing, you know, how they respond when one of their white friends says something that is offensive or, you know, those moments. And so I think that, that, you know, on the one hand, it's great for kids to have that knowledge. It's a first step, but that can't be where it ends. Um, in addition, there's a lot of examples in the book of kids who are going to integrated schools, but there's all kinds of dynamics within the schools that reproduce racial inequality. And of course, there's a huge body of really great research on that. Um, but I think, you know, this, this notion that an integrated school, that's the goal and then we're good. I, I just don't think that, that there's any evidence to suggest that that's true. Yeah. And there's so many integrated schools where there's like schools within schools. Oh yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at who are in the advanced classes or, you know, who's tracked in the yes. honors course or pulled out for gifted or NAP. And so anyone who is in those integrated schools and feels like, Ooh, I've done the work. Look at the numbers. Exactly. And also the experiences. I mean, there's great research that shows, for example, there's a book, Despite the Best Intentions by um, Amanda Lewis and John Diamond, and they find that the reason that many of these patterns are persisting in an integrated, well-funded school that they're studying is because of white parents and the ways that white parents engage in many of the same behaviors um, that I document in my book, calling up the school, complaining, you know, making, trying to demand that their kid gets more stuff. So even though it's an integrated space, those parents are still trying to use their racial and class privilege in this um, study to, to leverage opportunity, more opportunities for their own children, ultimately at the expense of the other kids at the school. So I think that, you know, in talking about schools, it's also important to remember the roles that white parents still play um, in shaping what goes on in them. Yeah. And, it, and that's really hard to call out. Because like you said, people don't want to seem like they're racist. They don't mm-hmm. want to seem like they're one of the bad ones. And I don't know what your opinion is. In my work, I often say to people, yeah, if we understand that this is a system and that white people have had power, that that does mean you're racist. Just like men have always had the power to make decisions and create outcomes and, and access for women. Women can't be sexist, but men can be sexist, right? That if we understand the system, yes, you are racist, but to not get caught up in the semantics of the word and really be willing to reflect on how your behavior is perpetuating the system. Right. Um, so I don't know what, what your opinion is. Do you do you use the word racist as you're talking about individual people? Do you just focus on this, the system of racism? How have you gotten people to hear what you're saying? It's a really important question. And obviously, I think as a sociologist, when I when I use these terms, I'm very specific in what I mean by them. Um, and so, you know, racism would mean both the structural level components as well as the individual or micro level components and everything in between um, and how these things mutually sustain one another. Um, I'm always interested when when white parents tell me that they can't do anything. Oh, this is just big structure. I can't challenge any of this stuff. And yet they're already making all kinds of collective decisions with other white parents about where they're going to live or where they're going to send their kids to school or or even things like the soccer team or where they're going to go on vacation or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I use the word racism with folks, but I also try to get them to really think about how they're already doing things, you know, like that they're, they're participating in collective action, even if they don't think they are. 
right? Like it might not be the collective action of challenging white supremacy, but when you get together with all your friends and decide to send your kids to the same school, I mean, that's also collective action. And so there's a couple different strategies that I've been using and talking about the work with families. Um, but I think my biggest, my biggest thing is like, you know, at the end of the day, if you want to live your life in accordance with the principles or the values that you profess to have, but you're not, that's not a good experience to have. You know, I mean, I'm so struck by how many like white parents will come up to me in private after the end of a talk or something and tell me how guilty they feel about, about reading this book or hearing about this research and they feel so guilty. And, you know, I kind of want to say like, you could not feel guilty. Like you could do something different and then not have, at least not maybe as extreme, you know, as you're, as they're expressing it to me, like you don't have to feel this way. You could actually align your values with your choices and with your parenting decisions if you wanted to. And so that's another way that I've been trying to talk to people about it. It's like, you're, you're implicated and you feel bad. You should feel bad. And now we all together need to make different decisions. Yes. And easier said than done. Definitely easier you know, said than done. I even think about that as a black person. You know, people often don't see the the struggle that black people have to go through in terms of educating their children, right? And how white supremacy shapes my decisions, even right. right? Thinking about like, do I send my child to the private elite prep school that so many parents, white, black whoever mm-hmm. are collectively trying to get their kids in because they feel like that's the shiny object, the golden ticket. Or do I say, you know what? Like the public school is acceptable um, and and not perpetuate that whole, like I need more resources for my kids mentality. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard because we're in it. And, and the dynamics of white supremacy have created right. the segregated school system that we have in our city and have created these hard decisions mm-hmm. and have created my pull to like think, oh, I should be over here. And I mean, ultimately, we decided to send our kid to the public magnet school mm-hmm. because it's good enough. It is yeah. good enough. And mm-hmm. and also thinking about like what his social experience would be like. Like I think about one of the books in your one of the schools in your book where they ban the word racist, yeah. right? Like yep. my kid has been in a school from K, well, preschool through eight that literally has vocabulary words around oppression. <laughs> so the, to then send him to a school where, where the environment is such that he wouldn't be able to name what's happening to him, Right. It just seemed like such a disconnect. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. It didn't align. Yeah, no. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, these are really hard decisions. And I think that, you know, parents of kids of color in general, like these decisions I think are, 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 are impossible in some ways, right? I mean, these are very difficult decisions. And, and I think that, um, you know, I have to get asked questions along, along this line. Um, but, but at the end of the day, I think that you're right. White supremacy and also notions of capitalism. I mean, I, I'm, it's interesting how many times people tell me, oh, it's natural to want the best for your kid. It's natural to advocate for your kid at the expense of other kids. It's natural, natural. And I'm like, what? That, nothing about this is natural. Like there are many other societies that organize themselves differently and organize family structures differently and think about parenting differently. And, you know, I think that we are so ingrained in this capitalist way of thinking about things that you know, it seems natural and that's how ideologies work, right? Like they seem natural. And so I think that there are other ways that we could do all of this. Um, but because we're so like in it, as you said, you know, it's just, I feel like the decisions become really difficult. Yeah. I'm kind of a closet sociologist. (laughs) 
I mean, I love, <laughs> aren't we all in a way? <laughs> uh, a psychologist who loves sociology and like Bonilla Silva and yeah. some of, you know, and just thinking about ideologies, I often say like a fish in water, you don't know you're wet. Right. And that's how they work. Right. That's exactly how they work. You don't see them because you're in it and yeah. it's so hard. Yeah. Ah, so hard to get out of them. Yeah. And it seems like um, such a big leap to even consider because the point you made around we're acting collectively already, like white parents are mm -hmm. acting collectively already. And just as people that we do, we do collective action a lot of ways, yeah. but we don't call it that. Right. Right. Yeah. We, we often call it out like that when it's, when it's trying to push against a paradigm or when it's subversive and trying to disrupt, but we're doing it all the time when we, when we support and perpetuate these ideologies. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of food for thought. Lots of food for thought. Anything else that you want to make sure people know about the book? Because I'm thinking, I want, I'm curious to hear about what new projects you have. Yeah. Um, well, I, I just, I guess about the book, just, you know, I would love for parents to check it out. Um, I think it's great, a great book to read on your own, but then also to talk to other parents about. Um, and so I think that, you know, I've I tried to write it in a way that's accessible. My mom read it and she's like, that first chapter is a little much there with the theory, but I'm like, mom, I am trying to get tenure, so I have to write an <laughs> academic book, you know, but I do think that once you get past that beginning bit, I think that it's more engaging and it's just, you know, the stories from these families that are really powerful. So that's all I'll say about that. But, yeah. um, yeah, in terms of my new research, I'm doing a couple different things, but uh, one project is I'm looking at children who are in middle school, for the reasons we talked about earlier, who are growing up in the era of Trump or the post-Obama era, depending on how you want to talk about it, um, and sort of how they're thinking about racism and inequality in this particular moment. If you think about it, kids in middle school today, you know, their entire lives were basically shaped by President Obama being in office. And so certainly many of the kids in, in, white, in the book White Kids, you know, told me about not even really thinking of it was a big deal to have a first black president, right? Because that's all they ever knew. Um, and so I think it's interesting or I'm interested to know what are kids thinking right now who are living in this moment where we know there's an increase in hate crimes and there's an increase in bullying along racial lines in schools. Um, there's some great research from um, Kathy Cohen, who's a political scientist. She has a black youth project, you know, research about how young people are thinking about racism and as it being a really big problem. So anyway, given that context, I'm just curious to see what are what are young people thinking. And so I'm interviewing kids in Mississippi where I live and I'm also well, in the state of Mississippi and then I'm also interviewing kids in the state of Massachusetts and I'm trying to compare and see, you know, what are the current events that these different kids are thinking about? How are they making sense of the blatant racism from the Trump administration? How are they, you know, processing these things that are in the news? How, you know, all of these different, you know, we could think of a million different things that have happened recently. Like how are they processing all of this? And is that any different than how the kids in this book or other research um, are processing things. Uh, so this new project includes kids across the race, across racial lines and class lines. So unlike my previous work that focused on affluent white kids, I have some really great graduate students that are helping me do some interviews um, and we're, we're finding some really powerful things. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's my new research and I, we'll see what, we'll, we'll see what that takes me, what direction that takes me next. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really important because you're, you're right. They don't know any different, these middle yeah. schoolers. And and so I even see with my oldest, well, both my kids, but my oldest in particular, like he's able to analyze and, and see that in our house, we are experiencing and talking about an event or an incident in one way. 
and that other people are talking about it in another way. And I think that started with the Ferguson uprising, that we yeah. were engaged and talking about police violence and and not just Mike Brown's murder, but the larger system. And, and we would say, you know, we have police officers in the family, and that does not mean we don't hold the system accountable. Right. And that they were able to see like, oh, this incident is being talked about very differently mm-hmm. in other spaces than it is in my home. And and to me, it's it's like, have we given them the tools to be able to do that analysis? It actually makes the work of talking to our kids about race that much more important. Right. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Hmm. So are you do you have any preliminary results? Well, um, I keep getting asked that. So I, I did. I ha- I do. Um, I think one of the most powerful results has been that for kids of color, they are experiencing or are expressing to me increases in anxiety, fear, um, concern about the future of our democracy. Um, kids who are who have parents who are undocumented, who are scared to leave their house. Um, you know, there's there's some really intense um, responses that I've received, and these are kids again living in both Mississippi and Massachusetts. In terms of the white kids, I'm I've found that um, again across both contexts. So racism is everywhere. Um, you know. It, the half about half of the white kids are telling me that you know Trump is awful and he's racist and this is horrible and they're trying to find ways to respond but then the other half are not saying that racism is no longer a problem in America they are saying yes Trump is racist but I don't care and so that to me is very different than what the white kids in my previous research that took place during um, the Obama years you know what they were saying they were saying we don't have racism what are you talking about Um, and I think that that Now I'm just seeing less of that and I'm seeing more kids that are, you know, acknowledging that that Trump does and says racist things, but they're saying they don't really care. And so there's a a great sociologist, Tyrone Foreman, who has um, this theory of racial apathy as sort of a new form of racism, much like colorblind ideology. And I'm really he has some evidence from survey research that shows that for for white high school seniors, racial apathy is on the rise. And I'm now documenting this at younger ages, too, um, that, you know, these kids don't care. And so I think that's really bad because I think that not caring about racism is perpetuating racism just as much as anything else. It is because it's the way it's the way things are set up. So if you don't care, it's going to continue to perpetuate right. itself. And oh, that's that's daunting. Yeah. And um, it's again, it's so it's just so pervasive. It's like hearing kids say like or more one 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 child put it. Trump isn't racist, but he is kind of racist. And I'm like, wait, so he's kind of racist or he's not racist, you know, and then but she's like, but I don't really think about that. You know, he's going to protect us or something, you know, so so it's just really, really um, fascinating, I think, and also disturbing from my from my own personal perspective um, to hear young people talking in this way. And I think that that is why your work is so important of raising equity, because these are kids who, you know, if they're not learning about, you know, race or the history of racism or contemporary issues of racial inequality at school, I'm not sure when they're going to. Right, right. Yeah. And and maybe, maybe if they take that one class in college and then there's so much propaganda around the liberal agenda in higher ed, will they believe it? I know I've had a lot of students say that to me. Yeah. And I, I said, here, go to the citations, read for yourself. You do not have to believe me, but this exists. Right. Right. <laughs> I don't know what else to say to you. Right. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's daunting because 
you feel like, well, what can you do if they're feeling apathetic um, and, and seeing it in action, they don't care. Then what can you do? Because in the past it was kind of like, well, it's not, it's not happening. Maybe I don't see it. Right. Like I think during the civil rights movement, everyone saw it. It was on the evening news. It was so clear. And I, and that's the time when we saw collectively everyone saying we need to do something. That was when affirmative action was created and Republican, Democrat, everyone was saying we needed this because it was so clear. Mm -hmm. But then we have these times where it wasn't so clear and it seemed, oh, isn't everything better? And the colorblind racial ideology and then Obama becoming president. I'm totally like fast forwarding through all sorts (laughs) of things. But it worries me that it can be so blatant and in our faces and people can say either one, I don't see it, to the more kind of pernicious, the more dangerous one is I don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what to do about that. What do we do I about know. that? I don't, I don't have a good answer. The only thing that I've thought a little bit about, and I think this is complicated, I'd be curious to hear what you think, is that I do think that racism is bad for everybody. Yes. And I, I don't, I don't want to ever make it seem like racism is like worse for white people or something like that. But I do think there might be some strategy of trying to like teach, teach white people how they're actually acting in their like worst interests or not their best interests, I guess, by supporting white supremacy, you know? And I I think a lot about the historical context of, you know, when race was used to divide people that had shared class interests, you know, and that history is powerful. I think some of my students um, at Mississippi State are definitely, you know, that's that they've never heard that before. They don't know that history. And I think when they hear that, they're like, hmm, that, you know, that's something to consider and maybe get them to care a little bit more. I don't know. I mean, I also think though that there's a larger ethical argument for why people should care about racism that isn't about it being bad for white people. Right. So that's why I say it's complicated. Um, so I don't know what you think, but yeah, no, I mean, I guess your comments are accurate. Like that's why I created raising equity. Like that was, that's my thought is that if from an early age, we can be adults in the lives of kids who are intentional about helping them be aware of their own identities, aware of other people's identities analyze systems of oppression, that they will be prepared as they grow up to transform them and to change them. That's my hope, but that's a long game, yeah. right? Like that takes adults who are willing to do that work mm-hmm. and who want to do that work. Yeah. So then you have kids that only know being aware and analyzing and transforming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's long. That's long term. That won't work for those high school seniors that are apathetic yeah. right now. My only hope is that they get into college or in a space. And so that even that feels elitist. Like, well, if you get to, into college, you might be able to take the course, right? But if you don't and and you're not taking in information that makes you a critical thinker, how are you going to shake up that apathy? I don't right. know. Yeah. Well, that's not a really <laughs> pleasant place to end. Oh, gosh. No. Oh. And yet... It's not always pretty and neat, right? Like this work is hard work and it's long-term ongoing work Mm -hmm. because these systems weren't created and built overnight. Right. Do you have any insights as a sociologist uh, knowing and studying like theory and ideology? How do they shift? What, What do we know about shifting ideologies? Is there anything that theory tells us? 
Well, I think that ideologies are constantly shifting, right? I mean, we have dominant ideologies, True. right? But then there's also, you know, constantly, you know, as Bonilla Silva talks about racial contestation, right? The the pushing back against colorblindness, pushing back against structures of inequality that has always, you know, been present alongside the, you know, white supremacy always being present. Um, so I think, I guess in that sense, I do see, you know, this is constantly in flux. And so that means that it can change in ways that are better, I suppose. Um, I guess I also, though, would just look to some of the kids in, in my book because um, I did go back and re-interview them when they were in high school. And so I only, it's very at the very end of the book um, and it's only, it's very brief, but I do see some evidence of kids who, as they got older, became more confident in their perspectives, whether they be more confident in their colorblind perspectives or more confident in their anti-racist perspectives. And I don't know that there's a, like a ton of hope in my book ultimately, but I, I do, if I have to point to one thing, I do think that some of those kids, so some of these white children are other teenagers really at this point are pushing back in ways that are thoughtful and reflective and, and that they have experienced some, some sort of training, awareness, transformation, like you were mentioning in their own childhoods that allows them to do that. I'm not saying they do it perfectly and I'm not saying that we should, think of them as like the the good white people because again I don't think that that makes sense to label the good racist good anti-racist and the bad racist I think everyone is implicated but there is some some kernel of hope there I think um particularly because they I talk about in the book how there was a black teenager who was shot and killed by the police in one of these neighborhoods and listening to the kids respond to that and watching their actions and how they, um, how they treated their peers of color in the community and how they, you know, in different, and it was a, a spectrum of different ways, but there was a group of kids who I think were doing things, um, in a positive way. And so that is a little hope. Yeah, no, that is hopeful. Thank you for reminding me. You know, sometimes you get caught up in the overwhelm and just thinking about that apathy and, and feeling powerless about it, uh, yeah, I got stuck. But you're you're right. Like change is always happening. Yes, right. Like it's always happening, and it's a myth to say that it's always been this way and it always will. Like the constant is change. Right. If anyone's an Octavia Butler fan, right? right? right. Like change is always happening, and yes. so that's that's part of why I wanted to have you on the podcast to share your not only your book but your thinking about how we need to understand kids as dynamic beings and and be willing to to listen to how they're thinking about yes, race. Absolutely. And and then as adults, how do we help support, shape, respond? It's it's important and it's big work. So, yeah, I appreciate you for being I appreciate you for being here on the podcast. If people want to find you, follow you, how do they do that? Um, I am on Twitter. It's Maggie Hagerman. Um, not Maggie Hay Berman, who is a New York Times reporter. <laughs> so it's Hay Gurman. Um, and then I also have a website, which is just um, my first and last name, margarethagerman.com. Um, so, yeah. Great. Well, thanks. Really, keep up the great work. And I look forward to hearing more from you. You're going to get tenure. If they don't <laughs> give you tenure, they they don't know what they're doing. So well, I really appreciate you saying that. And I appreciate even more the work that you do um, in St. Louis and, and in general. Uh, so you keep up the good work, too. And thank you all for joining us on Raising Equity. Definitely check out Maggie's book. It's a great read. And like she said, it's a really good book to also read with others. Maybe do a book club. So make sure to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time on Raising Equity.